Well, good morning. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the other pastors here at Grace. We are excited that you're here with us. I want to add my welcome to Brad's. Um, We're continuing our series that we started last week on the mind of a disciple. We're going through the book of Philippians, or the letter um, of Philippians 2 for the spring. And so this morning we come to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what should I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you that you have given us yourself, you've given us your word, so that we might know who you are, know who we are, know your love for us and grow in our love for you. We ask that you would meet with us, transform us by your word even now. Uh, We pray that you would strengthen us and equip us, uh, help us to know your love for us, your faithfulness to us. May the gospel become the sweetest things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a TV show from several years ago, there was this scene, I'm going to describe it to you, where these group of friends are sitting at a bar and they're trying to help one of their friends decide what job she's going to take. Um, They all tell funny stories with these uh, flashbacks um, about how they got into their career that they find themselves in. And one guy tells a story about how he used to work at a Christmas tree farm in Syracuse, New York, uh, with old man McHugh, who was the Christmas tree king um, of Syracuse. He was the inventor of the triple netting. So old man McHugh's pretty awesome. Um, The scene flashes back. They're walking in the Christmas tree farm. Old man McHugh is like greedily counting his money. Um, And then he has a heart attack and and, and, like collapses. Um, So the scene flashes. They're in the hospital. Old man McHugh says this on his deathbed. He says, when you're on your deathbed, when you've lived your life, you're never going to say, I wish I spent more time with my family because money and the things it can buy you can take it with you. And then he dies. Um, 
and they flash to the character, and he has this, like, epiphany moment. He's like, old man McHugh is right. You can take it with you. And, like, that explains why this character spends his whole life trying to accumulate wealth and power and climbing the corporate ladder. Um, now, we laugh at that story because we see through the lie that old man McHugh is telling us. Um, you can't take it with you. But it leads us to ask ourselves a question this morning. What am I really living for? What am I really passionate about? What's my primary passion and drive? Where do I seek life? You know, is it in pursuing money? Is it in pursuing power and status? Is it in your performance, whether it's at work or school or at home? Um, is it in your relationships? Is it in just getting and acquiring more things so you can be more comfortable, so that you can be more satisfied? Well, what happens when you actually do achieve your goals? I mean, I, I would be willing to bet, if we're honest, we might be really excited in those moments, but we shift the goalposts because we realize it's not enough. It didn't ultimately make me happy. It didn't ultimately satisfy me. And then, you know, what happens, um, you know, when you fail? What happens when um, you lose or it's taken away from you? Uh, if you're living for relationships and someone fails you or betrays you or hurts you, uh, if you're living for work and your performance and success and you fail or you see that there's someone actually better than you um, and you don't get that recognition, you, you don't get that job, you don't get that, that pay raise, um, you're crushed. You're devastated. Um, because if we make good things, ultimate things, the Bible calls that idolatry and the reality is is nothing besides Jesus is meant to take that place in our hearts and in our lives nothing outside of Jesus can really satisfy our hearts deepest longings and desires you know another way to think about this question is what is what is my primary passion is you know what are you worshiping um, if we look at the apostle Paul in this text the primary thing that that Paul is passionate about uh, the Thing that drives him the most, that holds his gaze, that guides his life, informs every decision and aspect of his life, is Jesus and his gospel. Um, remember, Brad said last week, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. He's writing from prison, and he's just spent the first 12 verses thanking God for these people and telling them about his prayer for them. And this church, we find out later, they sent a gift to Paul um, so they're really anxious to find out about how he's doing. So Paul tells them um, at the beginning, but Paul doesn't actually tell them very much of what he's experiencing. He tells them how he's doing, but not really what's going on. They're going to have to talk to Epaphroditus, who is the one that brings this letter to them, if they want to know the details of, of what life in prison is really like for Paul. Um, there isn't an, an exhortation in this passage uh, to follow Paul's example um, that comes later. In chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says this, whatever you've learned, whatever you've received or heard from me or, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. Paul is serving as a paradigm um, for the Philippian church and for us as well. Paul, um, the, the Philippians are, are sharing in Paul's struggle. Verse 130 is, Brad's going to tell us next week. Um, they're sharing in his struggle. They're being persecuted. They're being opposed for following the true Lord, the true emperor, their King Jesus in the city of Philippi. And there's also this like internal struggle and this selfishness that's happening in the church that's putting them in danger of, of blunting, if not damaging, their witness for Jesus in Philippi. 
So here, you know, in this country, thankfully, we're not persecuted the same way Paul in the church in Philippi uh, was. Uh, but that's not the, the case for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. I mean, if you look at what's going on in China, um, but some of us do know what it's like to suffer for the sake of following Jesus. You know, we may not have been thrown in prison for it, but it may cost us at work. It might cost us at school or with our friends or our families. Um, and we do know what it's like to experience pain and suffering and discouragement and disappointment. So Paul this morning is going to serve as a paradigm for us in pursuing the mind of a disciple of Jesus. So I want you to just hold this question kind of in the back of your head throughout this, this whole sermon. You know, what's my passion? What am I living for? What is my life centered on? And we're going to see this morning that using Paul, a life centered on Christ is going to produce joy in the midst of difficulties. It's going to produce an unshakable confidence in a certain future and an outward-facing heart concerned for the needs of those around us. So first, a mind centered on Christ produces joy in the midst of difficulty. Um, I don't know if you remember when the movie Inside Out came out. Um, it's about the emotions of a teenage girl named Riley, and they're personified, you know, with joy and sadness and anger and disgust and fear. Um, but when the movie came out, each emotion had their own trailer uh, to kind of introduce you to their character. And the trailer for joy begins this way. It says, when everything in your life is going your way, that's when joy takes control. You know, I love this movie. I think it's awesome. Um, but I think they got something wrong here. Joy's name should really be happiness. Because happiness is what happens when everything is going your way. Um, joy is, is something that we can experience in the midst of even the worst ex uh, circumstances. You know, joy can exist in the worst suffering, in the worst persecution or pain, or even facing death. Now, why, do, why can we say that? Well, look where Paul is. Where's Paul writing from? He's writing from prison. He's chained to this rotating group of soldiers. Um, he's lost his freedom. He's lost all comfort. Any sense of privacy or rest or security or relief. He's chained to these Roman guards day in and day out. And while he's in chains for Jesus, there are those in the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, who are opposing him. Verse 17 tells us, there are those preaching Christ trying to stir up trouble for me. Paul's experiencing imprisonment, persecution, and opposition from his friends in the church. And yet in verse 18, he's able to say this, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul, are you crazy? You don't have any reason to rejoice. Why can he rejoice? Because for Paul, the, his primary mission, his purpose in life is Jesus. And seeing him exalted, as he says in verse 20. The important thing he says in verse 18 is that in every way, what does it matter? Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And then in verses 12 to 14, Paul he just, he's updating the Philippians on his experience. They're anxious to hear how he's doing. They care about him. They love him. They've sent him this gift. He's their first pastor. And he's trying to ease their anxiety about him while he's in prison. And he tells them that, saying, my chains, they're actually serving to advance the gospel. The whole palace guard, the praetorian guard, the emperor's elite troops and bodyguards, all those around him, 
they know why Paul's there, and they're getting to hear the gospel. They know Paul's not there because of a crime he's committed. They know he's not there because of some political um, thing that he's trying to do, this uprising. The gospel is advancing, and he's getting to share the good news with those that he's in chains with. And people's lives and their hearts are being changed because of it. You know, we don't see it in this passage, but if you go to the end of the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says, All God's people here send you greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household. It's not just the guards that are hearing the gospel. It's those in Caesar's household. They're hearing the gospel, and they're being transformed because the gospel is unstoppable. You think Paul would be really discouraged. You know, he's a traveling evangelist and church planner. He can't do the one thing that he's called to do. It's like a basketball player right now that's hurt and can't help his team in the NBA playoffs. You think he'd be really discouraged because he's on the sidelines, but because Paul loves Jesus so much, because he's become so enamored with his grace, his heart is so aligned with Jesus and Jesus' mission that he's trusting that God is actually in control even while I'm in prison. One commentator said he's resting his head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. Um, that even though he's in chain, the, the thing that he's most passionate about the gospel advancing. It's happening. Nothing's going to stop him from pursuing advancing the gospel, not even prison. And in fact, it leads him to joy because in verse 14, there are those in the city who are, who are followers of Jesus who, instead of being intimidated and discouraged because Paul's in chains, they're actually emboldened to preach the gospel all the more. They've been encouraged because of his chains, and they're, they're sharing it with everyone around them. And this causes Paul to rejoice. So the question is, well, what about us? You know, when we're experiencing opposition, whether it's from the world around us for following Jesus, whether it's from inside the church, whether it's just in general, we're experiencing trials and difficulties and pain and suffering, what's our response? You know, does joy actually burst out because we're so enamored with Jesus and his love and his grace for us, that despite what's going on, we actually have reason to rejoice in who God is and what he is doing and what he has done in the past. Or if you're like me, we let our circumstances, you know, dictate our perspective and we, we give in to despair. We give in to discouragement and hopelessness because the things our hearts are really fastened to, we find that they're failing us. They're not providing the hope and the security that only Jesus can bring that we really deeply long for. Paul challenges us here in this passage to fix our hearts on Jesus, to see his mission of redeeming and, and rescuing the world through his suffering, through his death, to have a kingdom perspective where our number one priority is being faithful to Jesus and seeing the kingdom and the gospel advance. Paul's suffering here. You know, he's not excited that he's in, that he's in prison. Um, but God is, is not advancing his gospel despite Paul's suffering. He's actually advancing the gospel through Paul's suffering. God often, you know, uses our pain, uses our discouragements, uses our difficulties and our struggles to encourage and to advance the gospel in the lives and hearts of those around us. K.J. Ramsey uh, writes this in her book, This Too Shall Last. She says, The spectacle of God's love was never power or prestige, but descent. 
And it's those who wear the spectacles of tears who best glimpse this beautiful descent. God became human with blood that would spill and a heart that would break to unite us to love that lasts. The one with power gave it up so that in our powerlessness, we could know his presence. You know, we don't thank God for our suffering, um, but we can be joyful in the midst of it because Jesus has come for us, because he has suffered for us, and through the faith that he gifts to us, we're united to him and we're promised that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, that not even death itself can separate us from him. And so because of the, the gospel of God's grace, because of the gospel advancing, having our hearts centered on Jesus, we can actually rejoice even in the midst of very difficult and painful circumstances. So a heart centered on Jesus produces joy in the midst of difficulty, but it also produces this unshakable confidence in a certain future. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, in the original letter that Paul wrote, there's no, is isn't there. It says, you know, he's, he's writing to emphasize this to the Philippian church, to live Christ, to die gain. Paul's in prison awaiting possibly his death, and his prayer in verse 20 isn't that he'd be released so that he'd be comfortable, so that he'd be free. His desire, verse 20 says, that he will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Again, Paul's main passion is glorifying Jesus, seeing the gospel advance, and he's torn about what's happening. In verse 22, if I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. You know, knowing his future is certain, that he'll get to be with Jesus. It gives him great confidence to face even death because he knows, Caesar, you can't really hurt me. If you kill me, great. I get to go be with Jesus. That's the whole reason I'm alive. That's what my whole life is pointing towards. If you let me live, great. I get to go preach the gospel and share it with more people. And so because Paul's confident in his future, he knows that he can't be hurt. If they kill him, he gets what he wants most deeply, intimacy with Jesus, getting to see him face to face and getting to be with him. Paul's mind and his heart are so centered on Jesus that he's torn because he knows the Christian life is lived between better and best. He knows what it means to live in this predicament of to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we know that this morning? I heard a story this week um, about Joseph San. He was a Romanian evangelist and the head of the Romanian Missionary Society uh, under, and was persecuted under uh, the reign of President uh, Ceausescu. And he knew what Paul wrote here. He, he knew and, and he would put those who were persecuting him in a bind because someone that meets a person that knows this truth, truth deep down knows, I can't kill you. Ultimately, I can't hurt you. So one day, um, Joseph is invited to go have lunch with a member of the, the Romanian secret police who had pledged that he was going to stop Joseph from preaching the gospel of Jesus uh, in Romania. 
He had this plan worked out. He was going to offer him like a really lucrative job um, under the, the pretense that if he took this job, he would no longer preach about Jesus um, in Romania. And Joseph knew that if he were to take this job, um, that if he, were to, if he were to not take this job, it would mean, you know, prison likely and, and maybe even his execution. And yet this is what, how he responds to, to this secret police officer. He says, I'm ready to die. You said you were going to finish me as a preacher. Well, I asked my God, and he wants me to continue to be a preacher. So now I have to make one of you two angry. And I've decided that I'm going to make you angry rather than God um, because I know that you're not going to like this. I know you don't like this kind of opposition, but I'm ready to die. And I know this means that you're likely going to kill me, but I'm okay with that. As long as I'm free, I'm going to preach the gospel. And for four years, Joseph was free in Romania because the secret police officer went back to his, his officers and he said, we can't hurt this guy. He's ready to die. We can't stop him. We can't kill this man. You know, when we embrace this predicament that, that Paul talks about here, to live is Christ, to die is gain, our joy becomes unstoppable, and we're given this great confidence in the king, and it becomes unshakable. So we have to continue asking ourselves this question, what's really at the center of my life? What's really my greatest priority? What really is my ambition in life? Is it Christ? I think our problem oftentimes is that we speak like this, but our lives say otherwise. You know, for, oftentimes for us, it's for me to live as Christ and work and comfort and relationships and getting wealth and fill in the blank. And those fill in the blanks are deep down, those really are our primary passions. Um, if Jesus isn't what we center our lives on, then we're placing our hope in something that can be broken, something that can be shaken, something that can be taken from us, something that can, that can fall apart, and we can't have the confidence that Paul has here when difficulties come. Because the reality is, is everything apart from Jesus is like sand slipping through our fingers. You know, they're empty gods that make false promises, and they can't deliver the rest and the security and the confidence that only Jesus can bring. But if we know Jesus, if we're trusting in him, then we can be sure that all we need is Jesus. And all we have is Jesus. And if we're his, Jesus always has us. And so we can face trials and difficulties and even death because we know the true king who lives. And even if we face death, we can have confidence of the certain future that is awaiting us, the goal Christ himself ready to welcome us and to be in his presence forever. So lastly, Paul shows us that a mind centered on Christ, it produces an outward-facing heart that's concerned for the needs of those around us. Look at, at verse 23 with me again. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joining the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is so centered on Jesus that, that Jesus' heart and Jesus' mission 
his, his mission of seeking and saving the lost, Jesus' mission of doing only that which pleased his Father, um, of loving God and his neighbor perfectly, it's become his heart and mission. So what that means for Paul is that, that Paul is living a life that's not primarily concerned with himself and his needs and his wants. He's modeling the Jesus that has loved him and died for him, and he has an outward-facing heart towards those around him. Again, he's in prison. He's potentially facing death. He doesn't know if he's going to be released or he's going to be killed, but, and he knows that it's better for him to die so that he can go be with Jesus. He doesn't have a death wish, but he is so confident in who Jesus is that he knows it's better for him, for Paul, to go be with Jesus. But because his heart is so fixed on Jesus, he knows it's better for the Philippian church if he stays so he can come and he can encourage them so they can grow in their faith, so they can increase in their joy. So for Paul to live as Christ, which means he's He's living the way of Jesus, daily carrying his cross, suffering and being persecuted for the sake of those around him. Because when you give yourself over to Jesus, when you trust in him and he becomes your primary passion in life, Jesus gives you himself. Through his spirit, his heart becomes your heart. His desires become your desires. You care about the things that he cares about. His mission becomes your mission. So participating in seeking and saving the lost becomes your goal in life too. Later on in, in Philippians in chapter 2, Paul tells us that having the mind of Christ is putting on the mind, or having the mind of a disciple is putting on the mind of Christ. So putting on the mind of Christ means we're not primarily concerned with ourselves. We're not primarily concerned with our goals, with our comfort. It's it's focused on serving the needs of those around me, of giving myself up for the sake of those around me. It's savoring the reality that Jesus gave up all of the glory of heaven. He came to earth as a man, taking the nature of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did that for you so that you could be his forever, so you could be welcomed in as a brother and sister, as a son and daughter of the king of the universe. Jesus looked on broken, rebellious, self-righteous, proud people, and while he hung on the cross, Hebrews tell us it, he considered us his joy, that we were his joy when he was hanging on the cross, and he looked forward and said, they're worth it, I love them, I'm going to do everything to bring them home. And so when we encounter this grace, when we encounter the grace that Jesus has given us, we become so enamored with it that we have to just let it bubble out and pour out on all those around us. It's living a life of humility, which isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's, it's pouring out our time, pouring out our energy, pouring out our, our forgiveness, our resources, our agendas for the sake of encouraging and strengthening and increasing the joy of those around us. So how are we doing that? How are, you, how are we all looking to increase the joy of those around us? Paul says, when he writes this letter, he says, brothers and sisters, this is Paul's family. And he's primarily concerned with his family growing in Jesus. And so this morning as we look around, do we see each other as family? Do you see each other as your brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandmas and grandpas, 
And is our primary concern, how can I love and encourage and support the person sitting next to me? How can I build them up and encourage them to love Jesus more? Um, Jesus tells us in the book of John, he says, they'll know your mind by the way that you love one another. So how can we be loving one another? You know, ask someone how you can pray for them. And if you get asked that question, answer honestly. Don't just be like, oh, I'm fine. You're not. I guarantee it. I'm not. <laughs> we, we need to be honest with one another. Check in on each other. Call each other. Text each other. Go to lunch. Go to dinner. Invite people into your homes. You know, look for those who need a friend and be one to them. If you're struggling and people aren't talking to you, go talk to someone else. I know it's scary and it's hard. But if we're followers of Jesus and we become enamored by his grace, we can't just be inwardly focused. Jesus' heart is always concerned with those around us, and he calls us to participate in that. And as we love one another, as we share our struggles, as we share our joys, as we share our needs with each other, we're going to grow in love for one another. We're going to grow in our joy. We're going to grow in our confidence, and we're going to continue to be more and more concerned about the needs of those around us. One of my heroes in the faith is Len Teague. Uh, he's the godfather of youth ministry in the PCA. He was my college mentor, um, and I got to lead my first small group with Len uh, when I was in college. But the amazing thing about Len is that Len loves Jesus so much, it's really all he has to talk about. Like, it's not in like this like cheesy, kind of disingenuous, inauthentic way. Um, he just, he loves Jesus so much that he knows he's all he has. And it plays out in the way that he interacts with those around him. That if you have a conversation with Len, Len never talks about himself. He's only concerned with you, and he makes you talk about yourself because he is so concerned for you. And it plays out in the way Len lives his life. Len's always at every like sporting event for students. He's always in different widows' homes, in different people's homes. He's helping people on the side of the road. Len is constantly pouring himself out for the sake of those around him as he mirrors Paul who's mirroring Christ and that's our call this morning when we grasp how much we've been loved how much grace we've received by Jesus we're called to experience this joy in the face of great difficulties we're called to experience this great confidence because we know that we have a certain future that even if we die, we get to see Jesus. And we're called to mirror our Savior and live for those around us. May God encourage us and strengthen us as we do that this year. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're good to us, that you're faithful to us. We thank you that you pursue us and that you've given us yourself we ask that you would give us a joy, that you'd give us confidence, that you would help us to be concerned for the needs of those around us. Um, it's hard. We don't do it well. We need to help. So, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would strengthen us and encourage us, that we would place our hearts and our focus, and you would be our primary passion. And as we pour ourselves into you, that you would, in turn, make us more like Jesus, increasing our joy, increasing our confidence, and increasing our care for the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.